This is Ginger Buchanan, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own, and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. Listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 138, Pulitzer. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, everyone. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. I'm Allison Pregler. And I'm Matt Dale. And today, the Quantum Leap Podcast Book Club reconvenes. Hey, Ooh, books yay. instead of movies. Yeah, we're, we're smart here. We're, we do all the long hair stuff, too. Um, <laughs> today, we'll be discussing book eight of the novel series, Pulitzer, by L. Elizabeth Storm. And we've been having some discussion off mic about, is it Pulitzer? Is it Pulitzer? Matt, how would you say it normally if, if just you were going to say it? Well, it... <laughs> Because I, I would say Pulitzer, but I appreciate that's because I've seen the Leap Home Part Two so many times, and that's how Maggie Dawson says it. But I, I, I I'm sure I read somewhere that that's wrong. Uh, but that's literally like ninety percent of the time I've heard that word in my life has been in that episode. So I'm, I'm not normal. <laughs> I feel like I mean when the other characters say it though, they say Pulitzer, right? Hmm. I think she's the only one who says it that way, but I was like, maybe it's a like potato potato situation. Well, as we we were also talking of my like as a Brit, I would I would refer to an, the animal the puma that Americans say puma, but to me it's a puma. So maybe maybe it's a British thing as well. Yeah, pu- Pulitzer, a Pulitzer for the puma. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I think the answer is we don't really know, but it's probably Pulitzer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say it's Pulitzer. It's always been Pulitzer in uh, the journalism circles that I've traveled in. It's a Pulitzer Prize. You're going to win a Pulitzer Prize. So I'm going to accept either pronunciation on this podcast. We we, we take all comers here. It's, it's a big tent. Very so kind, very if kind. you want to say Pulitzer and Pulitzer, you can say it twice in the same sentence differently. I don't care. I won't edit it out. So have at it, everyone. But uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, this is uh, for all the banter that we have about the title. One heavy kind of book, guys. Ooh, That's in both yeah. senses, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's huge. It is, I believe, one of the longest of the novel range. And uh, it, it's it, it's typical for Liz. Liz's books, both of them, I think this and Angels Unaware and maybe Obsessions. Mm. Obsessions was, was enormous. And Mirror's, Mirror's Edge, too, pretty big. Uh, so maybe it's uh, – I think Mirror's Edge was the longest one. Yeah, Mirror's Edge. It certainly looks the longest and it felt the longest. It's tiny fonts as well. Mirror's Edge has the, has the biggest page count and the smallest typeface. So Really, man? Carol basically wrote two books there. Yeah, uh, Pulitzer, this is largely considered 
one of the best, if not the best of the yeah. novels. Most people recommend it. Uh, a lot of the novels like to have Al focus stories because he's he's such a fun character to write. But this is just all about him uh, right into his backstory. So if you want to see an Al story, this is the one to read. This is the oh. last time we're going to hear the word fun during this podcast. <laughs> Well, why don't we read the cover blurb? Uh, I can take it if you guys uh, don't mind. I have it here ready. Go for it. All right. A leap for an unknown soldier. Maryland, 1975. Sam has leaped into a psychiatrist at Bethesda Naval Hospital. A newly released POW just off the plane from Vietnam, a Lieutenant John Doe, has been admitted for psychiatric evaluation. But when Sam walks into Doe's room for the first time, he realizes this soldier has a name to go with his face. Lieutenant Al Calavici. Now, Sam must think fast because some unhappy Pentagon officials have questions for Al. Questions about his imprisonment, his captors, and his reported treason against the United States of America, Quantum Leap Pulitzer, <gasps> or Pulitzer, an all-new adventure, first time in print by L. Elizabeth Storm. <sighs> so, yeah, Liz dove deep on this one, but... Uh, before we get going on this, I just I, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but it's apropos to bring the story up again. I actually met Liz once or twice, I think. Uh, my first eSleep convention, she was there when I first met Ginger Buchanan, and I went to actually pitch my book, Foreknowledge, to Ginger. And Liz actually sat down at the table with us when I made my introductions and, you know... She was the greatest person. I enjoyed meeting her so much. She was so sweet. She was so supportive. And I completely forgot when I opened this book um, because I pulled my usual. I pulled this off the shelf yesterday and read it yesterday. And the first thing to greet me was the title page in which I have a signed um, autograph here from Liz. And she writes, Chris, Aww. best of luck with your book. Uh, so yeah. And she says, see you next year on the panel, question mark. L. Elizabeth mm -hmm. Storm, East Leap 95. So this, I uh, got this, I guess, right before I, you know what? No, when did this one come out? I'm, I'm sure I had it, you know, and I probably brought it with me because I knew she was going to be there. June 95, I think. Okay. So yeah, this probably had just come out. Maybe that's why she was at the, at the con. She was probably promoting it and they probably had this one to, uh, to tout, you know? So yeah. Um, I can say from personal experience that, uh, Liz is a terrific human being. And, um, I, I know we haven't gone into initial impressions yet, but I'm going to say, um, a very, very good writer. So, um, yeah, I'm happy that we're talking about this finally because yeah. this one's been looming large. It looms large in the novel range. It really does. Can I also just make an, a note here before we talk about the, the quality of it. Um, this is one of a handful of novels that was published early in the UK. We had it a couple of months earlier. And mostly when that happened, the UK versions were riddled with uh, typos. This one actually escaped fairly unscathed. But uh, oh. it, it just, just reminded me with you mentioning about it when it came out. Uh, we had it in April of that year. So, yeah, we got an early draft, but it was almost identical to the finished one. So I wonder how that worked, because it came out under the box tree imprint in the UK yes. still at that point, right? It's before they, they just combined everything back to Berkeley or Boulevard. In this case, this is a Boulevard in Disha now. So I think that they had gone from Berkeley to Boulevard with this book or the last book. So, yeah, my understanding is that um, the texts were available uh, and this was for several novels. The texts were available to both Boxtree in the UK and Boulevard in the US. And Boxtree were under pressure from 
bookstores that wanted to get the books out as soon as possible to tie in with various different reruns. And so that's why oh. several of the books ended up coming out earlier than they should have done while they were still being proofread and typo fixed. But yeah, Pulitzer was basically done anyway. That's interesting. Yeah. And possibly, although I've never been certain, but there's there's a handful of the books that have different cover art in the UK and possibly that's why that is as well. I don't know for certain, but I know Colin Howard did unique cover art for four of the UK releases, cool. uh, including Pulitzer. And it may have just been because... The US art was not available at that point. I do not know. But I do know, yeah, it's because Box Tree were being pressured to get books out ASAP, regardless of whether they were finished or not. Uh, which <laughs> which is imagine. why the Quantum Leap A to Z is is terrible in the UK version. <laughs> Julie was still in the middle of writing it. Oh man. Anyway, sorry, that, that's a complete sidetrack, but just No, no, I like it. Yeah, I just never thought about that. Like uh, you know, the urgency in beating other people to the punch, these tie-ins. We gotta sell these books. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine that there would be such a like a high demand for quantum leap books in the UK. Like like that why were they in such a freaking rush? Maybe they just thought they wanted to strike while it was still in reruns, etc., before yeah. it became, quote, irrelevant, you know, in people's minds. And we had I, I don't know if you guys had the same thing when it, it first went into syndication on USA, but we had uh we had a couple of times during the nineties where it switched the, the the rights were switched between different channels and each time I remember even as well, I, each time it, there was quite a, a frenzy about it. There was a lot of advertising saying, Oh, it's it's gone from BBC two to Sky and it's gone from Sky to UK Gold and each time it was a big deal. And we are, of course, the country now that hasn't even bought the new series of Quantum Leap. Uh, we don't <laughs> seem to care about that. But back in the 90s, yeah, every time a channel outbid another one, it was being spoken about. So I can understand why the bookstores would have said, well, hang on, there's a lot of advertising going on for it shifting to Sky. <laughs> we have a new book on the shelf now. Whereas, I, I don't know, in the US, it seemed to be fairly stable just on USA throughout the whole of the 90s. So maybe it didn't really matter whether it came out one month or the next, you still had a show in daily reruns. Yeah, I mean, for me, for sure, the USA Network was where I saw most of mm. the early episodes, if not all of them, because, you know, they weren't available until they went to syndication on uh, USA. So it was years after the fact. And as a matter of fact, when I was writing my book, I still hadn't seen a lot of them. So it's um, it's funny that um, there was such a bidding war for it over in the UK, yeah. here in the US, it, they parked it on USA and there it stayed. And I guess for a while until they, they found the new big thing, you know, and they could run that instead. So it wasn't such a um, big deal here that I can recall. Yeah, it did well over here. It was in the public consciousness for a long time. Well, I mean, that's good. And I guess maybe that helped with the novel series. Mm. And you talk about the box tree editions having um, typos. Mm. I remember, I think the same con that I met Liz Storm, I think Barbara Walton was there. It was either um, this con or the next con. And her book Odyssey had come out. And uh, there's a line where um, Sam says something like, if he could only leave some small reminder. And in the box tree edition, if he could only leave some small reindeer. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's kind of a, a delightful thought. I guess maybe we're jumping to the Odyssey show, but... Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sam leaving a small reindeer just for the children to know that he's been there. Yeah, it just seems like something he'd do, yeah. I'll leave a carrot out for Sam. Yeah. 
Oh, this is one of those podcasts where we're doing our best not to actually start talking about the book, isn't it? No, uh, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, okay. So, and that was my fault. I, I went, I took us down that rabbit hole. I know. I, I like the rabbit hole though, because it's always good to get these things in context in as much context as possible. So, I mean, the fact that the call for the books was so great there, I seemed, I guess the fandom was pretty big there. And if you're going to talk about like getting deep dives into like a book that could be a fan favorite, you don't get much deeper than, mm-hmm. than Pulitzer. This one is is something else. So uh, why don't we do some initial impressions? Uh, Allison, why don't we start with you? This is a great book. It's a really heavy book. Uh, it's it's not a light read, uh, but it's got a lot of great character stuff in it. So yeah, I enjoyed it. Oh, all right. And Matt Dale. Yeah, I enjoy this book as well. Uh, it is tough to read and it's not one that I... I return to very frequently, not because of the quality of it, just because it's it's not massively in, enjoyable. I like a a lighter read, but it achieves most of what it sets out to do. I, I've got a, a couple of issues with it, but for the most part, solid book, and I would definitely recommend it for sure. Yeah, I, I'll agree. This is by far the uh, best of the Quantum Leap novels that we've read up to this point. And um, not only that, there's there's just a depth of character here that I feel has been missing from the series until this point. Liz just has a flair with them. Mm-hmm. And it also reads like a novel. It doesn't – I don't know if I'm going to put this right, but when I'm reading a Quantum Leap book, I feel like I'm reading a Quantum Leap book. When I'm reading a Star Trek book, it feels like I'm reading a Star Trek book. Like there's a certain – I don't know if it's a formula or a feel or just um, a, a, a type of writing that you associate with tie-in fiction. And I'm probably guilty of it in foreknowledge too because I've been reading tie-in books my whole life. I kind of know the form and know what's expected. I don't think that Liz – deals with that. This feels like just like a novel that happens to take place in the Quantum Leap universe. Yeah. And that that might sound like a weird distinction to make, but to me it's everything because it doesn't feel like we're going through the motions. This feels like, you know, a substantive book about characters that you get to know very well and care about so much by the end where it it's 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 a level above. And maybe I'm gushing, but I forgot how good it was. And I got to be honest with you, I don't think I enjoyed it as much the first time I read it as I did this time. So on on the point you made, because uh, I find this really interesting, I, I had the same feeling that uh, this is the first one that really felt like a novel that just happened to be set in the Quantum Leap universe as opposed to a QL novel. And I had assumed when I was first reading it that uh, Liz was a an established author like McConnell, who'd done dozens of books and had that quality behind her. And I did some Googling, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think she came from the same background as the rest, or most of the rest of the authors, right? A fan fiction writer that just that this was her first properly published work. Am I right about that, or did she write under pen names for something else? Because if so, that's stunning as a first published work. Yeah, I I honestly have no clue what Liz's deal was before uh, the Quantum Leap novels. I'm sure that we discussed it when I met her, but uh, if we did, I don't have any recollection of it. And I assume this is her first professional sale, Um, but if that's the case, that's fine. But if this is also like her first writing experience, wow, what a talent, right? Yeah. (laughs) I would assume that she wrote fan fiction before it. It has that quality of someone who has written 
Quantum Leap fan fiction. And I don't say that derogatorily. I just mean like it, it has the quality of someone who has spent some time in this universe, maybe on yes. their own. So uh, yeah, I, I think that the writing was really great on this. And um, I don't think it was dry, despite the fact it was serious. And sometimes that tended to happen with some of the other novels. So I think like, uh, yeah, I think it was it was written really well. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, if we can maybe just start with, with the main thing here, this is very much an Al novel, as we had discussed, and it gets so far back into Al's past, but it, it's all the stuff that they've alluded to in the series, and she takes everything and expands upon it wonderfully. And Matt, I, I need your help here, because a lot of this book is predicated on the fact that Al gives um, in the series two dates on when he <laughs> yes. returned home. And yeah. I'm trying to remember if it was all in the leap back or if it was in two different episodes and they just happened to contradict each other. Do you have uh, the record on that? Or? Yes. Uh, MIA, he says he um, he came home in 73 and found that Beth was married. And then at the the very end of Leap Home Part 2... He says, what the hell, I get repatriated in five years, and Leap Home Part 2 is set in 1970. Since 1970 plus five does not equal 1973, whoops. <laughs> and I, I love the way that, and this is this is where the, the fanishness of the author comes through. This, this happens in a lot of the books where there's these little goofs or issues and the authors take the opportunity to tie up little loopholes and come up with their own things. And yeah, this whole book seems to be based on fixing an error in a Belisario script, which I find hilarious because it's such a good story. It's such a good explanation. Yeah, it seems to confirm and fix an error uh, in a way that it, it confirms headcanons for it. Because if you pay attention to that, uh, there has to be some sort of history that changed there. It's kind of interesting to me in The Leap Back Part 2 that they even said five years later, because as this book states, that is past when um, American POWs supposedly came home from Vietnam. Mm. So what is, why would they say that anyway? So it's interesting that this book dives into that, like, why did Al come home so late? And how does that tie into what Sam did and, and how Al became promoted so quickly? Like, it ties a lot of things together. Yeah, um, I, I, that was one thing that I, I was trying to, to track the thread on this because I didn't remember when the conflicting years had appeared in the series, but it's just something like, duh, idiot. It never even occurred to me that Sam's actions in The Leap Home Part 2 might not only have screwed you know Maggie over. You know Thomas saved mm. her expense. I traded a life for a life, and they go into that in this book. But it also could have screwed up the timeline of Al being a POW and him getting rescued. And with him saying, Sam saying, "You could have been free." Well, I, I was always free up here, and I get repatriated in five years anyway. It never even occurred to me that maybe Sam changed something for Al. Maybe Al's going to be there longer now. That makes it eight years. Eight years. Can you imagine spending eight years through that? Like, that's crazy to me. And I just, I, I want to uh, mention as well, because you talked about already about some of the things that it, this book ties up. The other thing that I didn't even pick up on when I was watching, uh, or whenever I've seen Leap Home Part 2, is Beth is out there waiting for her husband to get back, and a photo of her husband wins the Pulitzer Prize which seems like another continuity issue 
Like, surely she should see this picture and say, oh, okay, maybe I should wait around a bit. And she even manages to explain that. Yeah, well, I mean, even if she saw that picture, it wouldn't confirm that he was alive. It would just confirm he was alive at one point. But it might give her hope to carry on, which is, it, it's just one of those things that, in retrospect, I'm surprised I didn't pick up on while I was watching and at least question that. And I never questioned it. Liz prompted me to question it and answered it at the same time. When did she get remarried? Like, MIA was, what, 69? 60-something? Let me get my timeline up. Because if she got remarried before the photo came out, whoopsie doodle. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean, she would still be remarried. So MIA is set in April 69. Soon after, Beth has Elder Claire dead. And then, oh, they she marries Dirk in June 69. So actually, yes, fair point. Um, by the time the photo gets taken, she's already remarried. Yeah, yeah okay. but I mean, it, she is already remarried, but that also calls into question that photo was taken in 1970. They would have a date for the photo, so they would know he was alive past when she declared him dead. Yes. But I guess they wouldn't know beyond that point if he lived, so I guess it could have just moved the date, you know, like, oh, he is alive. Just kidding, we don't know. And to be fair, if she saw that photo, what what's it going to do? It's going to make her say to her new husband, whoops, I guess he's still alive, but too late. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it also, how early were they able to confirm he was the one in the photo, too? Because I would think if you saw a group of POWs, you might not automatically know who everyone is yet. It might have taken them some time to identify everyone in the photo. I think in, in the, the book, though, Liz does explain that the, the photo didn't come out straight away and it wasn't attributed to Maggie and there was all kinds of shenanigans there. So right. that's why, like I say, I it wasn't something I'd questioned. And yes, on reflection, looking at the timeline, maybe I didn't need to question it. But Liz manages to bring it up in a fan-wanky sort of way and <laughs> ties it up neatly. It's, it, this book's full of fan-wanky stuff being tied up. Amazing. Well, she ties up a lot of things in ways that make sense and seem true to the show. It's not like, well, how did Sam get a hair streak? I don't know. We need to explain yeah. it. You know, like, it's like, okay, <laughs> these were things that were contradictory on the show, but this is an easy way to explain it. Yes. Like, it ties a lot of things together. Uh, it's really great. And uh, a lot of really cool character stuff going on in this. Also interesting, uh, the leap date starts on Al's birthday, June 15th. June 15th, 75. And he makes mention of that um, right there. Is it today's my birthday? I think he does anyway, does he? if I recall correctly. When he's talking to uh, the Ensign. So many characters in this book. I, I did a comprehensive list. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, had I not read it just yesterday, I would have been hard pressed to remember everybody's names and things like that. But yeah, uh, I was saying before, I was really glad you did. Cause to be honest, uh, as soon as I see a military title, uh, I instantly forget the name and every character becomes the same. So it was kind of hard for me to follow some of this stuff. I got the story, but there were a lot of parts where it was just these people talking about, uh, conspiracies and cover-ups and military stuff where i'm like i bet chris is really into this <laughs> but i i don't yeah. know <laughs> but that's something that's like a personal preference i don't think it was badly written or anything it's just something me personally is is hard to to pay attention to you know understood and um that's that's a fair um criticism i have to say uh, especially when you're coming into a tie-in novel right 
Usually my biggest hurdle when I'm reading a novel like this, no matter what the franchise is, they do have to establish their own characters. So those initial chapters where you're getting to know the external cast that is just not the core people that you want to read about. It's, oh, this isn't Kirk and Spock. What, what is this? Why am I? And then. You, you get over that that barrier. It's almost like you got to sort of push through it. And then once you do, and then once you start to get to know the, the ancillary characters, that's when the book comes alive. In this case, I had that same reticence. I was like, oh, who are these generals in a room with a senator? And uh. <laughs> But I said, all right, I – I trust Liz already just from the first, the first, cause this was like on page, it's literally page 42 where they bringing all, all these new characters. And based on the first 41 pages, I was like, okay, Liz has done such a great job so far in just these first, you know, couple of dozen pages. Let me just really concentrate on this and see who they are and get pictures of them in my head because I know we're going to be talking about these people a lot. And she gives you like, it's almost like a data dump at the beginning. Like there are just so many new characters all at once in a room. So it's hard to get over that that hurdle. But once I did, I thought it was good. Now, I'm not going to say that everything in the book was terrific. And a lot of that stuff, Allison, that I know that you glossed over. Uh, as I was reading, I was like, Allison fucking hates this. <laughs> there were, I'm not going to lie, but here's the thing. I started reading this months ago. And then we stopped because there were other podcast things and then the other delays happened. And I'm like, I'm not rereading this. I'm continuing where I'm at. And there were a lot of like starts and stops for me to forget everything. And I did. So it took me a bit. And then like the very ending of the book, I honestly didn't know if it was a twist or I wasn't paying attention the whole time. When we get to that, I want to ask you guys about that. <laughs> yeah, I ended up, I did some stop starts and some speed reading. So I am I'm not the person to double check. That with either I, I I know I love the book, but um, yeah, some, some but of the specific. I do want to repeat. This is a great book. Um, yes, it's just uh, the way that that I happen to read it and my attention span. I I forgot some things, so uh, hopefully I don't get too much wrong. But uh, that's nothing against the book. That is my own retention of things. <laughs> In my mind. Yeah. And just to complete the thought that I began with that when I was doing that whole preamble about the characters, for the most part, I think all of that investment in these characters paid off. I liked almost every one of them and I hated the ones I was supposed to hate. And like I said, does that mean that some of those aspects of the story, you know, that couldn't have been tighter? Yeah. Yeah. There was some fat to cut here. But – for the most part, I enjoyed the time that I had spent. It wasn't just like, okay, get me through this freaking scene. Mm-hmm. It wasn't mm. like oh, yeah. about air raid drills in the German P- German camp and the uh, – well, I'm just trying to think of the wall. Where were they at? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was character stuff and not just like research uh, data dumps. Because some, some of the previous yeah. novels, it's like you could tell they did a lot of research into what goes into a surgery, what goes into a mountain rescue, what goes into blee blee blee. But it's not a lot actually happening there. It's just like, look, this is accurate. Like, well, all right. <laughs> my, my ass is asleep because I'm on a snowmobile, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I do think they were doing a lot of character stuff here uh, with the, the extra characters added. Uh, we also got to learn more about Weitzman, who was a character that we did mm. know about. We got to learn more about Donna's father. I mean, they were characters that were established in the show, but we really hadn't seen that much about, so expanded on their stories. So what did you guys think about the inclusion of Weitzman? I had forgotten that he was in the book, and they somehow referred to Lincoln, even um, obliquely, when uh, he was first introduced as a character. I said, is that Weitzman? 
come on, that can't be, oh my God, it's Weitzman. <laughs> and it was another way, I think, like in, like, Weitzman comes in my book and he's a cartoon. He's ridiculous. <laughs> and I love the way that Liz takes something that's supposed to be just a, like a one-off gag and, you know, just a buffoon of a character and actually works him into the plot in such an integral way and in such a respectful way. Like, okay, this is not a cartoon. Weitzman has depth and Weitzman has an agenda and he's not just the villain of the committee that they have to blackmail, you know? Yeah, I mean, part of that comes from the descriptions on the show. Um, for people who don't remember, Weitzman was introduced in uh, the first proper episode after the pilot, Starcrossed. He is uh, part of the committee and he wants to declare Sam non compass mentis. Uh, so he is sort of a villain. They describe him as having a Lincoln fixation and wearing a stovepipe hat. Weitzman? Short, fat guy in knickers. Tall, skinny guy with a stovepipe hat. He's got a Lincoln fixation. Not described as wearing a stovepipe hat in this story, <laughs> which I think is was good. He might have been one of the senators in um, Honeymoon Express, but it's not really clear who everyone is. But I think part of that might come from that as well. But I like that this story kind of gave him, you know, reasons why he would be so adversarial and a little bit more about his backstory. Yeah. Why don't we maybe recap some of the main plot points for people who, like you guys, maybe haven't read it or read it over the course of seven months and <laughs> forgot a lot about it. But, I mean, basically, Al is taken home as part of a program that is set up by Senator Weitzman and another senator in the book named Blackwell. In the 70s when he's been repatriated. Right, in the 70s. So it's 1975. And he's uh, the first in a batch of three to get back to the states that they're um, negotiating to get back. This is after an operation in 1973 that had supposedly brought all of the POWs home. But uh, it turns out that, of course, there were some unaccounted for. And um, Al was one of them. So uh, they're bringing Al home as part of, I guess it's like a secret government program to do this, working in cahoots with the Vietnamese government to get these soldiers home and also normalize relations. But if it comes out in the press or something like that, that there were people left behind, it's going to be like a whole shit show and they don't want any of that. So I, this is where I, I kind of got confused with the book. Like I got it while I was reading it, but ask me to like trace what all the machinations were. I, I sort of, you know, it makes sense in the time. Yeah, but yeah. Like right now my head is spinning trying to get it right. I know I'm not going to get it right, but. There were a lot of wheels turning. There were a lot of, a lot of wheels turning. There Thank were you. different cover-ups going on. <laughs> there were different things. There were some uh, political reasons for it as well. Some election was coming up and they didn't want all this coming out. Um, they covered up Maggie Dawson being the photographer because they didn't want to uh, have it revealed that a woman was brought out on a mission on one of these things. Part of what happened there ended up changing some things for Al. Al ended up escaping and then that's why he wasn't rescued because of something Sam did. So there was like all sorts of different things happening here. And then there were people doing secret undercover missions like during the, the timeline of the book too. Cause like, <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. like this reporter who is trying to do the uh, a story on Maggie Dawson and then finds out the stuff about the POWs and then poses as Beth to talk to Al. And then Sam is there also. And then he has a mission <laughs> where he has to save someone at the hospital from suicide, but then he also wants to help Al and then somehow has to bring all of that together. Then there's the stuff at the project going on. 
and then you got Al dealing with PTSD, and then you have all these other side characters. So it's a little bit difficult to pay attention to every single piece. And but that very, being said, <laughs> very difficult to summarize in any coherent way. Which yeah, which yeah, and that's again this that's so um, atypical. Oh, and then uh, I didn't even talk about the stuff with Donna. Donna is also a plot because Donna has a beef with Al because of him being a POW and she has this resentment because of her dad. And then that somehow ties together at the end. All of this stuff does tie together for all of the things going on. It does tie together. Very well. And it's a long enough book that it doesn't feel like you're rushing through all of these different things. Yeah, no, it's a rich tapestry, you might say. I want to ask something that I've, I expect to get shot down for because I, I think we've agreed. We all love the book. But surely if we've read it and Chris read it very recently and we're now looking back and saying there was so many things going on and lies on top of lies on top of cover-ups, we can't actually explain the plot of the story. Doesn't that suggest <laughs> it was too busy? Isn't this actually a failing of the book? It might have been. No, and I, I I love the book, so I'm I'm just challenging myself here as well. I think you you're you're trying to serve two different masters with that statement. It might be hard for us to encapsulate the book in um, a short way for a podcast audience who maybe is not familiar mm-hmm. with it or doesn't really remember it uh, that well, but. In the moment, reading the book, everything hangs together and fits together and works together very well. It's just that you'd have to go through and sort of refresh yourself with the detail to give it um, the justice that it deserves in such a short format that we have here. And it's like saying, well, Game of Thrones can't be very good because I don't remember every single (laughs) plot thread that goes through. There's there's other reasons Game of Thrones might not be good, but... (laughs) I'll take that. Yeah, I just... I need need to have that explained. I need to figure that through. Like, it sounded like we were dunking on it and I couldn't quite get my head around why is this not a problem? But yes, you've explained that well. Thank you. No, honestly, Matt, like, I think, like, there's a, a fairness to that as well. It's difficult for me to tell sometimes because uh, sometimes I just can't pay attention to things. So sometimes <laughs> it's just me. But some people might find it busy. But I think if there are people really invested in the story and that uh, it's easier for them to follow uh, political, military, intrigue type stories, this will really reel them in. Just sometimes there's certain types of things you just don't retain in your mind. But I don't think it was too busy per se. It was just a lot to take in. Yeah. It was complex. But I could see someone thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. Complex. And that's that's when when I was, you know, growing up, my favorite books were doorstoppers that had like a thousand characters that were all interwoven in so many ways over multiple books. I was a big fat fantasy fan. And um this sort of had earmarks of that because there were multiple, multiple storylines going on throughout, but in the end, they all sort of come together and um, it works. It hangs together cohesively and each part of the journey is by itself separately entertaining, but then when it all starts to come together, it's it's even more satisfying. And that's where I'm talking about like getting to know those characters and investing the little bit of mental energy that it takes to get a picture of who these people are in your head and to get it straight, who, who relates to who and yeah uh, you might find it easier in a different setting that you like better but it's it's sort of the same principle no matter what kind of book you're reading it's kind of the same principle like Allison like with you if I'm reading like a noir book like a detective book from the 30s or something like something from Dashiell Hammett or uh, you know like a Sam Spade book 
that bores the crap out of me. There are like 17 characters and they're all just standing around the room <laughs> talking most of the book. And it's just like, wait, now who knows who and what? And <laughs> I, I know I'm a close reader, but why am I, why is this not clicking for me? You know? So yeah, I get it. I get it. In this case, I just, I happen to like all of it. And I think that also the fact that we knew we were going to do the podcast on it. So I was paying extra attention. And the quantum leap veneer is, is a draw for me. Oh, sure. If this wasn't a Quantum Leap story, would I be reading it? No, of course not. No. <laughs> I want to know what's going on with Sam and Al. And this is a, a much deeper dive into Al's story than we've seen in, in anything. This might be the deepest dive into his story. And yeah, I, I really want to get into some of this Al stuff. Yeah, yeah, let's. Guys. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was harrowing. It was just harrowing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. He, uh, he, he just came back. So he's dealing with all sorts of stuff, and uh, this triggers a lot of bad memories for Al in the present day as well. So you got a lot of PTSD going on. He's relapsing into drinking. Sam is seeing things that he hadn't seen from Al before. He even says he didn't think Al had ever gone into detail about Vietnam with him. So he's learning a lot of new things about him and uh, getting into some raw emotions. Yeah, and I mean, you you have all of that and the juxtaposition that you get between the older Al, uh, the admiral that we all know, and Lieutenant Calavici, and everything that he's going through in that tiny little cell that they have him in at the basement of the hospital. I mean, how did he get through it the first time without Sam there is what I'm wondering because – Everything that he was bottling up, that he was bottling up, uh, no wonder Al is such a mess later in life and how this, this basically ruined so many, so many things for him. Like he just, that's why he's so flamboyant. That's why he loved the seventies and disco. I think they said it in Disco Inferno. Vietnam was behind me. The space program was ahead of me and I was just having fun. Yeah. I mean, it's a great like explanation of like why Al is so into these seemingly frivolous things, because it is as far away as possible Yes, from where he was. Yeah. And not only is it, is it bad enough that he was a prisoner of war, but then they go into a whole story about, you know, how he was using U.S. codes to try to cue spies into the fact, anyone that might be listening into the fact that they were still alive using using newer codes. And this is where Donna's father comes in. But somehow that goes sideways and he gets accused of treason. He gets accused of collaborating with the enemy. And not only is he abused in the POW camp by, by the Vietnamese, but his own comrades, his own soldiers turn on him and torture him as well for being a traitor. And he's carrying all of this with him. And I, how do you not go insane? I mean, I guess like in the original history, he didn't really get over it that well. I mean, he was working at uh, Starbright when Sam met him. He was fighting with a vending machine, hitting it with a hammer, which doesn't sound like something a well-adjusted person would be doing. So maybe <laughs> in, in either timeline... Sam did help him, but it's amazing that he the character is adjusted as he is, considering all of the things that he's been through. Mm. And you can see it like uh, paralleled the things happening in the past to the owl in the present. He's hiding out in the imaging chamber because it's small, this enclosed space. Right. Yeah. He's got scars. Uh, he's he's seeing um, Beth where Tina is. All these like crazy things. Yeah, it's really messing with his head, and uh, he's hiding out in the elevator in in the in Sam's time period in 1975. Any place that's like small and concealed, and where he can mm. just be invisible. And I found it really 
like I, I didn't realize the significance of it. I thought like the elevator stuff in the beginning with the hologram not going out of the elevator was kind of goofy. There was one scene that she talks about him being like only the front part of him was looking through the door and the rest was sort of encased in the door. And I thought, what is he, Han Solo and Car- Carbonite? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's this, that's this. But, but then I was just like, oh, wait a minute. Why were you laughing at that? Because this is actually so tragic. Like, he's not coming out of that what elevator Quantum because Leaf's he so good at because he can't. Yeah. He can't. He physically can't. It's so good can't. at though, like like funny tragedy though, right? Because it's absurd, and then you're like, haha, oh no. Oh. <laughs> yeah. One thing that that Liz does excellently here, um, aside from exploring Al's backstory in a believable way from things that we've seen on the show already, is explore Sam and Al's connection. And it's it's kind of a, a weird dynamic because you have Sam who knows Al and Al is already his best friend. And Al confronted with a Sam who he doesn't recognize. He wouldn't even know Sam at this point anyway. Um, so it's just this weird doctor that seems to be taking an interest in him. And for all that, even though it shouldn't work because the dynamic isn't there, it does work. She makes it work so well. There's a scene towards the end of the book where Al can't sleep and Sam shows him, why don't you put your bedding on the floor? If you can't sleep in a bed yet, you've been sleeping on the floor like this for eight years. It's going to take time for you to readjust. And he sits in the room with him that whole night and Al is finally falls asleep. He's having these nightmares and he's just breaking down. And it was just like, oh, my heart hurts. Mm. That's the scene where also Sam sings the Beatles to him. Yeah. And he's yeah. holding his hand so tightly that his, that he's making his hand bleed. His nails are digging into his hand and he's weeping as he reminds him of this kid that was at the camp with him and that would sing the songs to him. And it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> it was so good. It was. And – um I, I remember, I, I believe it was Ginger that told me this, or maybe it was Liz, but um, one of the things that they talked about with me was the fact that Liz wanted to include more of the lyrics to A Little Help from My Friends in the book. And Ginger said to her, you know, um, we really would have to buy the rights for that. If you want to spend the money and pay for the rights, I'll, I'll include them. I think it's entirely appropriate for the way that you've written the book, and I think it does fit in. But you're going to have to write around it otherwise because we can't include mm. all the lyrics because that's just a copyright yeah. thing. And um, I got to be honest with you, not being a great Beatles fan, I think that – if they had just gone into them singing the song like beat for beat, kind of like the Imagine scene from the Leap Home Part One, I think that would have been tedious in a book. Yeah, well, then it becomes a lyric fic. You know, there's lots of fics that just put song lyrics in it, and when <laughs> it be- it becomes less of yeah. But I, I can see where she was going because if if you wanted to subtitle this book anything, it would be the Leap Home Part Three, right? Oh yeah, it's yeah. definitely a, like a follow up to that those episodes in particular. Right. So having like Sam sing Imagine in the Leap Home Part 1 and then both of them singing A Little Help from My Friends by the Beatles in uh, the Leap Home Part 3, essentially, ostensibly, <laughs> is is a nice sort of bookend. But uh, again, I don't know that – I think that would have taken me out of the story. I'm glad that she had to write around it because she alludes to it enough. Um, if you know the song, you know the song. So it's going yeah. through yeah. your head anyway. And then you just don't have to sit there and, you know, it's not like Lord of the Rings where you have to hear them sing about the east wind and the west wind and the south wind. <laughs> and, and, oh, no, Bor- Boromir's dead. You have to read all the lyrics <laughs> to the, the Oompa Loompa songs as they take the kids away. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it was fine just to allude to it. It didn't need the lyrics in it. Like, it it was a beautiful moment. 
That's an interesting story, though. Yeah, I wonder, it would have cost a buttload for Beatles lyrics, though. <laughs> now, now we have to ask we have to ask Matt, who is famously and I think proudly oblivious to so many pop culture things. Tell me that you know a little help from my friends. What the You think I might be unaware of the Beatles? I mean, come on, I know I, I some of my weird, obscure American shit TV references <laughs> are a little bit wobbly. But the Beatles He's British. Yes. He knows Beatlemania. <laughs> hey, listen, exactly. <laughs> It's in my blood. As far as I know, he all he cares about is Saved by the Bell and Spice Girls. What do I know that he knows from Ringo Starr? <laughs> he knows only the finest of pop culture, okay? Yes. <laughs> Saved by the Bell, the Spice Girls, and the Beatles. Yes, I'm aware of- If the- Zack Attack didn't sing it, sorry. Not not in your uh, playlist. In, uh, in choir practice, when I was like, I must have been six, seven years old, we used to sing Beatles songs, so- Including with a little help from my friends. And- Did you sing out of tune, Matt? Hmm? Did you sing out of tune? <laughs> See, you don't know the song. <laughs> he's he's making fun of the lyrics of the song. Yes, I know. Well, I not know. making fun. He's making fun of you using the lyrics of the song. <laughs> I'm not here anymore. I stood up and walked out on him. <laughs> I, I have no funny retort. I remember the lyrics, but... Um- All right, bringing things back to the book. Uh, so Sam loves the Beatles, but he hates the 70s. Hates disco, that returns. But Sam has more of an understanding of why Al loves it so much. So I like that they tied those things together. Sam's like, this is stupid. This is tacky. This is dumb. And then he realizes like, oh, duh, this is why someone like Al would be into something like this. He takes him to a a disco that apparently they used to always go to together. They had a disco they used to go to. It was in DC. Yeah. So it was whenever they were in DC, they would go to this place. I wonder if it's a real place. I love it. Sam takes Al dancing. He sneaks him out to go dance at a disco four hours. This man just came back from an eight year stint in Vietnam. And he's like four hours of dancing for you. (laughs) It was so good, and it was another one of those things, too, where it's like, it's lighthearted. Well, what's the right way to treat somebody in that position, Alison? You tell us. What's, I what, would what think would physically, you, you wouldn't... Four hours of dancing's <laughs> tough on anyone. Eight yeah, years yeah. in Vietnam, you're dancing four hours? All right, so you're thinking, maybe veg out on the sofa with some Netflix. Yeah, yeah okay. Netflix of 1975. <laughs> no, but it was such a great scene. It was great, and it was another one where it's like happy, and then ends kind of sad because uh, you know he's having such a good time out on the the dance floor, but then like his claustrophobia kind of sets in when more of the the people are showing up. So Sam gets him out of there. Man, it was just so good. Yeah, yeah, and um, I I, I want to go um a bit into uh, the character of Tess here. She was uh, the reporter that was chasing down the story that involved her. Her original story was supposed to expose the fact that Maggie was actually killed in the same mission uh, where Tom was originally killed that we saw in the Leap Home Part Two, and the army covered it up, saying that the photo of Al was taken by uh, like a reconnaissance unit, an intelligence unit, but um, they had proof otherwise. Different kind of film, different kind of camera, and. The army would never cop to the fact that they would have a civilian journalist go on a hot mission like that. So there was a cover up there. And then in the course of reporting the story, you can see Tess, who is so um, obsessed with Maggie's legacy and that type of reporting being a crusading journalist that she is going on an arc where she's going down, like down, down a slope, like steeper and steeper and steeper into 
areas that she doesn't really want to go into, but she feels she has to, to quote, get the story. And I liked Tess throughout the book, but the second she decided that she was going to imitate Beth so that she could get to Al, I was just like, no, that's it. We're off. We're done. This character's dead to me. Like, that (laughs) is reprehensible. It was pretty dastardly, but I guess that was the point. That was where it was It was too much, and even she realized by the end, like, she'd what, gone too far. Yeah, it's like, what am I doing? Mm. Like, what, what, is, what is worth this, you know? And uh, as, as someone, again, with a journalism background, this is the part of the story that usually annoys the crap out of me because, oh, people don't usually do this or it's not like that. This is just fiction. But every part of this rang true, including the lengths that she went to to sort of get this story because she was so desperate on such a tight deadline. She would have the cover in the 70s, having the cover of a glossy magazine. You could write your ticket. I mean, that, that mm. was, it was mass media. Millions and millions of people would read magazines. So it was a good get. And I could understand why she was pursuing it so doggedly. Uh, aside from the fact that there was a truth to be told about one of her heroes. But do, do the means justify the ends is what it gets down to. And when I spoke to Liz, she had asked me, honestly, Chris, what do you think the strongest part of the book was? And without hesitation, I said, when Tess got up and walked out. And I, because how far can a character go and still maintain some kind of humanity, like some kind of believability? Like she would just have become like the buffoonish evil senator twirling his mustache that we saw in this, that Senator Blackwell. And I like the fact that she didn't ruin the character, that she had the character have sort of an an epiphany about how mm. bad things had gotten, you know, it's just like a slow slide, right? They call it a slippery slope. Like mm-hmm. it's, you, you don't realize how far you've gone until you pick your head up and say, oh my God, this is where I'm at. And I guess it took Al confronting her as well. That was another part of the story. I mean, we had the ensign who was sort of the dupe and. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. There was um a part with Tess where she's interviewing Tom. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, <laughs> this part I thought was silly. Okay, <laughs> this felt very fanficy. So she <laughs> she's interviewing him, and then he has to mention his little kid brother saying he was going to die in Vietnam. Get it? Get it? He's he's going <laughs> to tell this story, and then she asks about the mission. <laughs> <laughs> that he was on and then he's like i gotta go milk some cows Bye. <laughs> <laughs> that was cute <laughs> i thought it was dumb but I mean, it was a dumb part in a mostly solid book <laughs> but yeah fair enough it made me laugh that's a part that should have annoyed me just because it's like callbacks for the sake of callbacks a little bit but it was an organic part of i guess a reporter's process to me like she would try to track down anybody who was involved in the mission and if tom was the commander of that unit then of course yeah i th- i think it makes sense that tom was involved it just i thought it was kind of silly like <laughs> what about this mission huh oh, i got to go milk the cows <laughs> bye <laughs> i think as well the the fact that it, it was in the middle of it wasn't just tom that was being interviewed we we got we had callbacks back to back with everyone, uh, all the guest characters from The Leap Home Part 2. So, yeah, I I get what you mean about that line, but it just came in the middle of so much other good, juicy callback stuff. I smiled at it. I was waiting for a cameo by Magic, because that would have been so meta at this point. I don't recall that Magic was featured in this. No, so disappointed in that. Oh, she interviews him, and then she's like, man, you look a lot like Ernie Hudson. And then we're like, oh my god, it all ties together. He's like, he's like no, wait a minute, um, I'm feeling a nudge, give me a second. 
<laughs> oh, sorry, that was the vampire saying yes to the nudge. <laughs> Wait, there's a flash drive over here. <laughs> Chase scene. Uh, I really thought that, that would have been incredible. Like, you, you would never know, like, if she's writing this book 30 years ago, however long ago it was, and Magic's character in this, and then all of a sudden, what are the odds, you know? It's funny. It would have been funny. It would have been a nice, uh, nice, huh? I guess she could have interviewed him, and then it would have been like, I don't remember anything from that. <laughs> it was a weird time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like, what mission? Mm-hmm. Uh? Mm-hmm. But the other part that um, could have been annoying as a tie-in just because tie-in was the whole Donna's father thing. And we had mentioned it before. Donna as her father. (laughs) (laughs) The Donna stuff was interesting. I loved it. And another thing that I think a lot of these these books are guilty of is that um, going back to the project, it's sort of like a big happy family and everything is – it's always so pat. It's always so so buttoned up. And again, I, I feel like I was guilty of that too. This, we have, Donna does not like Al. There is a lot of tension between them. And she has got a beef with him from the beginning. Like, he says that she's had a problem with him since Starbright. Yeah. She's like, do not give me a massage in this one. <laughs> We are on the outs, Al. Uh, I like that they allowed Donna to be kind of unlikable, but I guess understandable, right? Because if you were in her position, you might feel the same way. She's resentful because she thinks, oh, if he'd said something sooner, maybe my dad could have been rescued. You know, she doesn't have all the answers. She thinks that he's hiding something. So you get where she's coming from. And the fact that they really don't get along, I I think, makes for an interesting dynamic. This, this is I, I know Chris is going to disagree with me on this because we've spoken about this this kind of topic before, but this is one of the few issues I have with this book is that it does make perfect sense within the confines of this book why that would happen. But you are playing in the same sandbox and the fact that the rest of the authors didn't go there means this sticks out so weirdly and so inconsistently with the rest of the range. I just find that the whole thing very uncomfortable. And I I know the counterpoint is, well, it's 18 individual novels that don't have to sit side by side. But my feeling is that they do. And when one author decides, no, you know what, I'm going to go and do something completely different with two characters, it doesn't sit right with me. Well, I kind of read it as what was going on in The Leap really um, brought this stuff to the surface like it wasn't just she's constantly angry with him because this had to do specifically with vietnam and the pow's um it was also bringing uh, forth other resentments she had like she kind of felt like maybe sam leaped because of al there's these parallels between donna's dad leaving her and sam leaving her so i feel like this is something that's sort of been bubbling under the surface and come to the forefront it feels like it should have come to the forefront when uh, Sam leaped away from her again after one night of passion with her to go and save Al. And Al's like, hey, yeah, he's in the Catskills now. Isn't that cool? And she's like, oh, yeah, let's go and look at stars. Yeah, but her in the leap back, she had no personality and she was boring. <laughs> so really, I was glad that she had some thought here. <laughs> yes, it, it's all good stuff. Rather than like, are you talking about the stars or my eyes? I'm going to talk to the sky. It's all good stuff. It's just inconsistent stuff and that. That no, that makes sense. Yeah. No, and I don't find it inconsistent at all. I find it consistent within the confines of this book. And um, 
That's not consistent, Chris. You can't say it's consistent <laughs> within one thing. What What was the sin here? The sin here that, that Donna was finally interesting is that so she needs to be bland whenever she's on screen or in the books. I mean, this there's there's character here. There's conflict here. And it's like, oh, I'm actually intrigued about this aspect instead of just getting through the project stuff. So it's just, yeah, I... I'm going to disagree with you. And yes, it's it's 18 individual books that, yes, stand side by side with the name Quantum Leap, but they're not volume one through 18. You know, it's not a contiguous story. No, but there are other ways of bringing characters to life and having things that we've we've not seen before and don't see again since. I mean, as I said off mic before, I've just been reading Song and Dance. That has some revelations about one of the characters that's totally understandable has never come out up before. This really should have come up before. Now, not even just in the novels, in the series as well. But yeah, again, it's it's not a big thing. And it is done so well that I can overlook it because at the end of the day, it, it was interesting and entertaining reading. It just took me out of the page. Yeah, I mean, I could see how uh, it could be seen as inconsistent. Uh, I found it really interesting. I think this is one of the few times I was invested in what was going on with Donna. And mm. I, I like that she didn't trust Al, and by the end of it, she kind of didn't really have a reason to trust him. He kind of lied to her at the end, and she's kind of like, you might be lying. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, he tries to give her closure by bringing her father's death certificate. Yeah, so there's this whole thing here. Uh, So her father is the person who said that Al collaborated, and the reason that he says it is because he is alive and dying of a brain tumor. Am I, did I have this right? He's yeah. still alive, but he's he's not in the right mind. And they didn't tell Donna about it because she wasn't listed as a dependent. They weren't informing all of the family about POWs coming back because they came back late. Um, so he knows that he's dying. When Al finds out about this, he decides to pull some strings, get a death certificate for Donna, and have uh, her father's name put on the wall. And the death certificate says that he died in Vietnam of the brain tumor she asks if he really died over there he lies to her face yeah (laughs) he goes in some ways i think we all did which i think (laughs) is a cool line it's sad but kind of contradicts the i was always free up here line in my mind Mm. uh and so i don't know donna just seems it seems like he screwed over donna in the end he's trying to be kind but he is lying to her even if she kind of knows he is. Now go 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 with the inverse of that, okay? Go go with go with okay, he tells her the truth. Well, uh, we were both prisoners of war in Vietnam and we had this brilliant plan to use his codes because he was there after I was. So they would know if we used his codes that these are actually new codes. So they must be live soldiers here, not just v- Vietnamese um soldiers with with old codes trying to trick us. He gave me the authorization to use his codes as we went to these camps so that we could signal, hey, we're alive, we're alive, we're alive. Oh, and then your father turned on me, called me a collaborator and a traitor, (laughs) and let his men torture me. Oh, and by the way, he might not have remembered that because he was suffering from a brain tumor that probably made him crazy. No, you know what? (laughs) He died over there. It's fine. You don't need to know. And I think that's when, when he says to Sam, I was free up here. He says that for Sam. You don't need to know my pain. You don't need to go through it. I already went through it. It's okay. Like, I feel like he's protecting them. I think what Al did at the end was uh, what he's good at, which is a beautiful lie. 
you know? Like, he's lying to protect the person, but you know why Donna wouldn't trust him on that? I think that it's the way it should have ended, but I get why she wouldn't trust him. I get why it's it's something that he said to protect someone. It's interesting that you interpret his I was free up here as a way to protect Sam. It's an interesting way to to interpret that. Maybe what he said there or what he said at the end here, in a way we all did, maybe neither of them are really the truth. Maybe it's a mix of both. Maybe we don't know how Al really felt. Yeah. And maybe there are some things that he can talk about. Well, yeah, your father did come home, but it was part of a, a top secret government project that kind of went sideways. Hmm. That sounds a lot like someone else that she knows, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there are many factors at play that I think tie his hands here. I think he did the best he could um, in terms of both helping her have a good memory of her father as good as she's going to get and give her closure. Sure. Yeah, I think it was just it was just interesting. I liked that dynamic and I liked it was kind of this ambiguous ending. Um they did there was some interesting things about Donna in this. Like she they uh describe her office in this as being devoid of almost all character cuz she didn't want to decorate it and admit that she's going to be working there for a long time. Was that indicating that like she she she's only working there because Sam's gone or no, I don't I think really know what her job no, is. The, yeah, well, the indication, well, in this, they make her like full-blown physicist on the project working on a retrieval program to get Sam home. Yeah. Is this the first time they said she's a physicist? In the books? Ever. Well, ever. Ever. Well, wasn't she Wasn't she training to be a physicist in, in Starcrossed? Yeah. Well she, well, she was taking college classes for it, but they never established like what she actually did. Was she a physicist? I don't think. They never said it on the show, so... Yeah, I think you're right. I I just always assumed, because, yeah, she clearly was at least taking classes in it. And it doesn't that doesn't seem like the kind of thing you'd take classes in just for kicks while you're really an English major. Well, a lot of people take classes and then end up not going into that as a profession. I mean, you can assume being a physicist was part of it, because obviously she... Uh, joined Project Quantum Leap and she was with Sam, but I don't know if they ever really established like what her job was or what her profession was. Well, we've talked about this before. What does Donna do at the project? Oh, we, but we said, no, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, whatever the story needs her to do is the answer, right? So in this case, she was yeah. a physicist. And I mean, uh, this is going to sound weird. If you want a weird aside just about um, why her office was devoid, because her decorating it meant that Sam wasn't going to come home anytime soon. So she was in denial about that. And yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that was what they were trying to say. But it's the same thing, you know, when, when I first got, uh, when I switched careers into medicine, like doing office assisting instead of being in, in broadcasting, I would get scrubs from Laura's hospital because, oh, this is just a temporary thing. There's no reason for me to get <laughs> scrubs. And I still have some yeah. of those same scrubs. And, you know, I'm still somewhat living in Aww. denial five years later. But you know what I mean? <laughs> like, there are mental things that you do to say, no, this is not me. Yeah. Like, it, this is stopgap. Yeah. This is just right now. I like that. Well, it's kind of like when uh, it's kind of like when someone's loved one dies and you you don't really want to clean their room out yet. You don't really want to take that extra step. We're not talking about thou shalt not, at. okay? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what it is. She's mourning a loss, right? Yeah, pretty much. Just like fan favorite, thou shalt not. And next week on the Quantum Leap podcast. <laughs> She's living in denial saying, this is just for right now. This is not going to go on much longer, even with all evidence to the contrary. Yeah. And this was four years after Sam leaped. That's when this story takes place. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out where this takes place in, in the continuity. The only thing I can figure is sometime after the leap back. Yeah, the, the continuity's a, a little bit stuffed up. Don't 
don't squint too much at it. No, the squints will find the holes, man. Where, where, where do you get the... Uh... Well, if it's four years after, that makes it 1999, but it does state that it was a year after the leap back, which puts the leap back at 1998. Now, the leap back is all kinds of messed up, but probably <laughs> takes place in 1999, even though that contradicts Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, yeah, I mean, it's late 90s, but that's that's not just an issue of this novel. And how does this tie into the new series? <laughs> Well, the timeline, 1999, it all adds up, doesn't it? It all adds up. Well, yeah, I mean... The, they need Ian's the, magic the, reset button is what they need. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, the, the, the season four and five timeline just became all very problematic. And so any of the novels that are set during that time, which this obviously is, this has a, a, a Ziggy that's being referred to as she, which suggests season five. It has references to the Leap Bat being a year ago. So this, this is very probably a season five story. But, yeah, the actual year that seasons four and five take place is all messed up and was before the novelists even got anywhere near it. I meant to ask when we were talking about it before. Sorry to jump around a little bit. That ending, when they say that, oh, Al's looking at Eddie's daughter, they keep referring to Eddie throughout the story. Mm -hmm. Is that when they revealed that it was Donna's dad or did I just completely bungle it? It is a twist. No, no, I think it was was evident to me that it it was him all along. Oh, okay. So you you guessed the twist, but it was intended to be a twist. No, in in my mind, it was it was well established that it was Wojciechowicz oh. and that it was Donna's but father. Matt seemed to think it was a twist. <laughs> but you guys, again, you staggered the book over seven months. I read it yesterday. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. That was the first time I was like, oh, is that what was going on this whole time? <laughs> I got that when I fir- and when when I first read all these books, it was when I was researching for the book back in 2015, and I did read them carefully and slowly. And I remember thinking at the time that was a twist. So if 2015 me thought it was a twist, are you sure you didn't just know that it was him and so remembered? No, no, I wouldn't have. And honestly, had it been a twist, it would have annoyed me because it was so much more interesting. All the Al and Donna stuff is so much more interesting if you know the context of Al's relationship with Donna's father. Um, so, yeah, I, I, if it was meant to be a twist, then I called it immediately. But... To me, this it was it was evident from the introduction of the character. I don't see why they'd keep calling him Eddie. It, it just seems odd to keep referring to him by the first name, whereas every other soldier in this gets referred to by their surname. Well, it's it's because L. Elizabeth Storm didn't want to spell Wojewicz a million times, so she's like, "Ah, he's Eddie, whatever." Everyone spells it differently anyway. So, uh... <laughs> just like Elise. <laughs> yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. In fact, she spells Elise two different ways in this book anyway. <laughs> Elise gets two spellings. So Awesome. Just awesome. I mean, I, I love the fact that this is what we're going to. <laughs> Sorry, that's just me. No, it's great. Are you kidding? <laughs> this is what we live for. So this was a quantum leap book, but boy, leap plot? Leap, what leap? What leap plot? <laughs> leap Sam plot? seems oh. so uninterested in this guy committing suicide. He's like, whatever, I'll get to it. And Al's just like, he's doing it right now. And he's like, hang on just a second, Mr. Bossy Pants. I'll get to it, okay? And then just happens to all fall into place. Sam really lucked out on that one. <laughs> this is my, my biggest issue with this book. The novels were not a regular thing like the series was where you tuned in week after week expecting the same format this novel could very easily have just been completely in flashback all told from al's point of view no sam no leap and we would have lost very 
little interesting stuff and the story would have been much more easy to follow and solid as a result. I do not like the fact that this is a leap story and didn't just go whole hoggers like Prelude. Yeah, this is just set before the project. I mean, Sam does change some things. It's, he changes yeah. what Al says at the at the, <laughs> the hearing, and like he, he does end up saving that guy's life, and they kind of tie that together with um, well, he they tie it together because he was the brother of this corn fed farm boy that Al knew in Vietnam. And the fact that Sam, who was also a corn-fed farm boy, <laughs> uh, that that uh, that helped him, uh, it sort of tied together. He brought Alan to to meet this guy. I don't know. I, I think there was some sort of dovetailing going on there. He oh he he does stuff, but to me, it's busy work that Liz has added in for the sake of adding in. He doesn't add value to the quality of the book. I, I think he does. I, I think there are interesting character things going on. The Leap is not that great, but I think that there were um, episodes of the show where the Leap wasn't that great, but the character stuff was good. Like, the, it was still interesting, even if the Leap was kind of bogus. But in the show, you had that conceit and you could not get ar- around it. With the novels, they had the opportunity to do like Prelude and just say, hey, let's do something set earlier. Let's do something that doesn't involve Sam and Al at all. Let's do something set in the future. and. This could have been one of those, and I, I really think it it was a missed opportunity. I I really liked that that Sam was in there, seeing Al like this in a way that he hadn't seen him before, and seeing it in a way that Al doesn't know that he's seeing him because Al didn't know him at that point. So it it was kind of interesting to to have Sam have that window there, even if it wasn't really leap heavy. Like it was just interesting that he got to be there, uh, and he did get to help him in some ways, you know. So it wasn't purely based on the actions of the plot like it was just i really liked the character stuff there yeah i mean this this at heart was a book about sam and al connecting and um the fact that sam was there in simon al's life when al needed him most where sam could actually help him in some small ways give him some solace and some comfort and it was i it's the whole reason she wrote the book in my opinion uh, all the other stuff was just to make that moment possible and yeah. that's to me is is at the core of this and i think another reason why it stands out is um probably the runaway fan favorite for all of the quantum leap books because of that connection between sam and al and you can't tell me that sam didn't change al's life for the better in a way that he couldn't during mia so it gives sam a little bit of closure on that score too yeah i can, I can at least do this for my friend it's not going to fix everything but i was there at yeah. a time when he needed somebody most and he didn't have anybody well at least now that's fixed yeah, he even he contemplates about that. He's just like, would it have been so bad if I had told Beth that he was alive? Like, did I do the wrong thing there? And it's kind of interesting thinking about that when you compare it to the series finale and what happened. Yeah, yeah. He's like, but again, we're looking at maybe the evolution of Sam here from someone that has to follow the rules and follow the formula to someone that's, okay, you know, Donna, you're never going to leave that office. You better decorate it because we're in it for the long haul and I got to start thinking about this stuff differently too. Are there rules? Who says there are rules? Oh, yeah. Uh, Sam thinks that he's more than a farm boy now. <laughs> he's more than a farm boy. <laughs> he's got more insight. He's lived other lives. Yeah, it was, it's interesting seeing the, the development of his character. Yeah. So, uh, again, it's just all part and parcel with the evolution that we saw in the series and in such an organic way that centers around the characters. And the, the only thing that, that made me, like, it, we were just talking about it, that the leap 
portion of this with the um the, the guy that was going to commit suicide turns out to be the brother of the guy that sang a little help from my friends to al that night when he wanted to die he almost committed suicide that was the implication there he almost he almost tried to take his own life and without that kid singing to him and bringing him back he would have taken his own life and it just so happens that the person that sam needs to save is the brother of this kid that to right. me was a little hokey but again you're talking about <laughs> Uh, you know, oh my God, it's it's wrapped up in such great emotional stuff. Like Al was going to kill himself, so maybe he wasn't always free up there. Yes, yeah, Sam, I was I was always free up there. Again, this is not something you need to be burdened with. This is my pain, and uh, that's noble to me. That's because Sam can understand. He can be sympathetic, but he can't be empathetic because he doesn't have the frame of reference. So Al is saying, "I got it. I'll shoulder it." Don't worry about it. I was always for up here. Go ahead. Go leap. Go. You know, your brother's – go enjoy your brother. He's here. You know? Maybe that's what Sam took away after that episode. Um, but after the events of this book, he's seeing it for what it really is. Uh, there's this interesting part where you're reading like this flashback uh, of events from the leap back uh, and um, from the leap home. And there's like these jumbled sentences and uh, these images of – Vietnam and gunfire mm-hmm. and Al saying when he's repatriated. And when you're reading that, or at least when I was reading it, I thought that it was Al because he's having all this mm. PTSD in this book. But then when they reveal that it's Sam having this dream, uh, I just thought that was really interesting. Like he's he's yeah. seeing more of what this really was. Right. He's putting it together. And and again, saying, you know, well, maybe, maybe there are no rules. Uh, I... I yeah, I hadn't even considered that until we started talking about it, but uh, we see much more evolution here for Sam or reason for him to start thinking differently because he knows he knows a greater truth than he did uh, – than we saw on screen. So it's another thing that the books can do that you really can't get into in a TV show or even a TV movie, to be honest with you. A Quantum Leap movie I don't think would ever go into this kind of detail, um, even though it could, even though it probably should. Uh, that's what makes novels so wonderful. That you can plumb these depths in so many interesting ways and still tie it right in with everything that we know about the series and actually enrich the series. And um, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I, I I think that, that that might sort of be circling in on my final thoughts on Pulitzer. Are there any other issues or aspects of the book that we haven't discussed yet that you guys want to get into? There's one final thing I wanted to return to quickly, only because I, I just opened up my digital copy of the book and did a search through it. So I just wanted to respond to Chris's point earlier. So the character of Donna's father, in the prelude, there's a line, Donna looked at the other picture, the picture of her father, Colonel Edward Wojciechowicz. Wojciechowicz, that name does not appear in the rest of the book at all. The character is then called Eddie repeatedly. And then on that final page uh, is the line, hang on, um, yeah, but the eyes of Eddie's daughter held a dawning forgiveness that uh, he thought he'd never see there. So, yeah, I think it was a twist because they, they specifically seed the fact that it's Edward Wojciechowicz and then they have a character called Eddie the whole way through that's just Eddie. All right. Yeah, yeah. The, so I, I think I think you saw it and well done, but I don't remember seeing it myself and obviously Alison didn't either, uh, which makes me feel a bit less dumb. And that, it, that was the, the big shock twist at the end. Yeah, no, I, I caught into it right away. So, yeah, I, I think probably because, like I say, in retrospect, I noticed that, yeah, a, a military character just being referred to not even by his full first name, but by a, a nickname does just sound a little bit off. Hmm. So, 
All right. All right. Well, then good on me. Good on me. I called it. Well done. But yes, I had nothing else. All right. So why don't we do some final thoughts? Alison Pregler. It was a good book. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, that's all I got to say. There was a lot of good character stuff. And um, yeah, it was a heavy book, but it's a good one. I think like if uh, people are looking for novels to pick up, this is one of the best ones. So, yeah, watch it or read it after you watch the uh, the leap back or the leap home. See, I do it too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll all do it to the end. You of can time. watch it, all three of them. How about you, Matt? Uh, yeah, agreed. I think this is this is one of the ones to pick up if if you're picking and choosing. It's definitely worth picking up. Just not if you're expecting something light and fluffy. It's not an easy read at all, but uh, it's worthwhile persevering with. And I'll agree on uh, both of those points. And like I said at the top, and like I was just saying, I I think this book, its chief victory, its chief triumph is that it not only takes everything that we know about Alzheimer's in Vietnam and all the threads that they dangled in the series, but it weaves them in a way that enriches that entire storyline and uh, actually makes it better. And now when I go back to watch The Leap Home Part 2 or even MIA, this book will be inextricably linked to those events and I think that the viewing experience will be better for that. What more could you ask from a piece of time fiction but to enrich the universe, to expand the universe, and to make it uh, a, a better experience overall? So good job, Liz. Um, really terrific book. The best in the novel series so far, and I'm really glad that we finally got a chance to revisit it. So I think that closes the book <laughs> on Pulitzer, Pulitzer, Pulitzer. But uh, we do have some feedback and Matt I want you to read this one (laughs) don't make me read this one (laughs) please (laughs) okay so uh, this is from uh, Apple Podcast Uh, Apple Podcast review five star review from I'm a sax man (laughs) and I'm a sax man says banterful geeky thoughtful Love these guys. Only came across them 2022 after the new series announcement. They know their stuff. They have all their own minds and share them each time as opposed to sticking to the same opinion. And most importantly, I love hearing a Brit get involved. Matt's a legend. A legend. Thanks, I'm a sax man. (laughs) Rearrange the letters of I'm a sax man. It's Matthew Dale. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Alison Pregler, detective. (laughs) It's entirely possible. No, thanks, Saxman. It's really cool. Yeah, thank you. I'm a Saxman. I'm a Matt man. So um, (laughs) we're happy to hear from you. Matt is a legend. Matt's a legend. We are lucky to have him on this podcast, and uh, you are lucky to be listening to him on this podcast. Quite frankly, yeah, all too. I'm blushing. You all have Matt Dale. You're welcome. <laughs> if you want to be like, I'm a sax man and tell us how amazing Matt Dale is, there are many ways that you can reach <laughs> us here at the Quantum Leap Podcast. You can drop us a line at P.O. Box 542, Bayport, New York, 11705. You can get us by phone at 707 
847-668-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can hit us up on Twitter at quantumleappod or Instagram at quantumleappodcast. And you can see us on YouTube at youtube.com slash thequantumleappodcast. And you can always go that extra mile and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. Just remember, we may use your response on an upcoming episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. And before we get to that next episode, I have to double check because I put the poll up on uh, our Patreon feed to see what episode they want us to cover next. Um, while I looked that up, Matt, we, we were talking about the YouTube. You had a couple of new videos come out recently that are both book-related and otherwise. Um, can you just give us a, a brief synopsis on those? There's so much going on. So in the last in the last couple of weeks, uh, we've had uh, Bob Ingersoll and Bill Spangler, who wrote the second and eighth issues of the comic book. Uh, they've they've gone live on YouTube recently. Um, uh, Julie Barrett, who wrote the Quantum Leap A to Z and pitched for another novel, uh, which didn't happen because the the novel range came to an end. Hence the, the tie in here. That interview will be dropping around about the same time as this podcast. So that should be there by the time you hear this. And although we've not edited them yet, we also have interviews in the can with Mindy Peterman, who wrote Song and Dance, and with George Broderick, who edited the comics range. So we're, we're going all out this summer with novels and comics. It's, it's an exciting time for the tie ins. That is something else. I mean, I always envisioned us you know talking to the authors as we came to the books but the fact that you're researching btmi and going full speed ahead with that you've really accelerated that timeline which means we have a lot of great content to come a lot of great content waiting for the main feed like when we read song and dance now we have mindy's take on it and thank you matt for uh reaching out to all of the authors that we could find a shame that we, we we just can't seem to track liz down so liz if you're listening yeah we'd love to talk to you about pulitzer obviously we love it and um obviously we'd love to get your insights on everything that went into um, writing this book. So uh, we gave you the contact information just a little bit ago. Um, please don't hesitate. And uh, once again, uh, thank you for the part you played in helping me get my book published and the warm, wonderful welcome you gave me. I know I've done this on other shows as well, but uh, it just it bears repeating. And um, I'm happy to have met you. Um, anyway, Matt, I did look and... Uh, I was correct in what I wrote on the rundown. So, hey, Matt, speaking of upcoming shows, uh, why don't you tell us what's coming up next? Wow, very exciting. We've finished season one, so we are leaping straight into the start of season two with Honeymoon Express. Embarrassed, folks. After 27 years on the Honeymoon Express, I've seen more than kissing. And before we even left the station, too. Honeymoon Express? That's what we call the Niagara Falls run. Most of these folks on this train are on their honeymoon. Come on, honeymoon. Two leaps and plenty of future goodness. And even some little microphones with little flashy, blinky, futuristic <laughs> lights in them. Oh, it's so cool. It's really neat that we're sort of dovetailing this book about Weitzman, or where Weitzman plays yes. an integral role, um, to a shot where we might actually be... I'm going to now try to see, okay, which one is Weitzman? 
Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they if they ever show us, but uh, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to Honeymoon Express. I'm looking forward to making fun of Honeymoon Express. To be honest with you. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I got a lot of issues, uh, but hey, listen, it's been a long time since I've seen it, so maybe I'll come back singing a different tune next time. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm excited to see, and I'm excited to talk about it with you guys. Until that time, I have been Christopher DeFilippis. I've been Allison Pregler. And I've been Matt Dale. And we'll see you on the rails. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris, with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Special thanks to our producers, Harold Sullivan, Glenda Palma, Chris, a.k.a. Brackmang, Mike Covert, Jeff Kiska, Craig Riedler, Cosplay Dad, Charles Allen Gossard, and Morgan Felden. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap podcast is a barren space production. Fly me to the moon and... I don't think they played that in this. No, but... I get by with little help from Sinatra. There we go. All right, let's do some uh, clappage. Everybody ready for some clappage? Sure. In three, two, one. And room tone. Sorry, I'm still hung up on Seymour. When you said, are you ready for clappage? I was going to say, careful, Sam. (laughs) They don't have a cure for that in the 50s. Pulitzer. Okay, I think she says Pulitzer, but she does say Pulitzer. Maybe that's just how some people say use. There's a movie called Puma Man, and uh, one of the, the <laughs> villain in it. He's, he he always says Puma Man. And <laughs> they did a mystery well, science we... theater on it, and they make fun of it. <laughs> that's how we say it in England. It's Puma. So oh, okay, when well he's growing up he's with... the guy from Halloween. I'm spacing on his name. Donald, Donald Pleasance. Pleasance. Yeah, he's the one who says Puma Man, and they always make fun of yeah. it in <laughs> Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> so when I grew up watching Defenders of the Earth, and one of the superheroes in it has speed of the Puma, and as as a Brit, uh, since we say Puma, all I heard was Puma, and that just made me laugh, because <laughs> poo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was it, just because it's not the normal way of pronouncing it. So just like, why do they why do they talk about poo all the time? Why does he have speed of poo? I don't know. I think it's just because when you hear Puma Man and the guy is like green screened on flying stupidly, like they've tilted him sideways to make him fly across bad stock footage. It's just <laughs> a culmination of all that's really good. <laughs> hey, eventually we're going to get to this book thing, right? Allison fucking hates this.